Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. I'm your host, Jess, and no matter where you are or what you're doing at the moment, I am so glad you could join us. Today is a special episode of CPR Unplugged. It is the first in a series called On the Spotlight, where we take a peek into the lives of people who work in the mental health field and get all up in their business, quite literally. We are joined today by Michael Magarinos, CPR's informatics director. Don't know what that means? Don't worry, you are in good company. I have no idea either. So let's dive right in and meet Michael. Hi, Michael. Um, Could you please just introduce yourself for us? Yes, for sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, As you said, I'm the informatics director here at CPR, which nobody knows what it means. You're not the only one. (laughs) Informatics is the field of uh, data analysis, reporting, integrating technology into workflows, those kinds of things. So I'm dealing a lot with that. Oh, okay. So when someone says run the numbers, they're like, go to Michael for that. He runs the numbers. Yeah, I typically do run the numbers. So yep, that's part of the job. But podcasting apparently is as well. So (laughs) (laughs) it's always good to have a little side job in there too. keep things interesting. For sure. Um, What does a day to day life in an informatics director look like? A lot of meetings, a lot of um, data analysis, so looking at spreadsheets, uh, downloading information from the database, looking at workflows and how to make them better, how to integrate technology to make things easier for people. So it's got to be fascinating, though, to take all of those numbers and really see the big picture, because that's lost on a lot of people most of the time. You know, everyone sees sort of the the microcosm of what's going on in their little area of the company but you're really seeing the whole thing yeah and one of the things we are really obsessed about is looking at treatment outcomes and how we can improve those how can we improve the uh, patient experience and that i usually tells you that so it's looking at it and acting on it and improving upon it very cool so you're really looking at what is helping our clients every time they come into session we are trying (laughs) (laughs) and we are trying every day to to make it easier for them that is awesome So what made you decide to go into the field of mental health? Probably personal experiences. I grew up, by the way, you might notice a slight accent. I grew up in Spain, but I was actually born in New Jersey. But right after my birth, within six months, my father uh, suffered a psychiatric episode. He was hospitalized, and that was the first of many, many hospitalizations. And uh, he was eventually diagnosed with a schizoaffective disorder. So I spent most of my childhood witnessing quite interesting behaviors from him, (laughs) scary behaviors at times. Uh, He would go into manic episodes where things were completely out of control, and they would be followed by periods of him not getting out of bed for weeks. I remember I was probably six or seven visiting him at a psychiatric uh, facility, and we were talking about Spain in the 70s. So those places were pretty scary. (laughs) And over the years, every two, three years, an episode would happen. We would, you know, uh, go through that as a family. And uh, so that was a lot of my childhood. And I have a older sister who's two years older. And she became a psychiatrist. So I'm guessing this had a, a big impact on us and on our desire to to see if there was a better way of treating people with mental illnesses. Oh, wow. Yeah. So your experience seeing the treatment itself. Oh, yeah. I remember my father screaming on the phone, uh, calling his psychiatrist and saying, you know, you're giving me medications that could sedate an elephant. I cannot live like this. And 
uh, I was, mm-hmm. you know, seven, eight, hearing these things and uh, seeing him not function uh, at times because of the medications, because of the symptoms. So it, it, it was quite an experience. I can't even imagine. So as you're, as you're growing up with these experiences, you get to around that high school, college age. Yeah, so the interesting thing, like I mentioned, in 73, uh, when he had his first episode, we were living in New Jersey at the time. That was around uh, right after my birth. And after that episode, they decided to move back to Spain, which is the reason why I grew up in Spain. So then he had a few episodes while I was growing up. And then by the age of 13, I was 13 when he decided to, after one episode, move back to the States. By that point, my mother said, I'm not taking the family back. So we stayed behind. He moved by himself. And he, from that point forward, he was not in the household anymore. And that, that was actually a relief for me and probably for the family because of all the stress that dealing with him brought along. So from 13 through 17, I, he wasn't around. And I, I was angry at him often as a teenager for not being there, for not being supportive, what I thought I needed from a father. But obviously, as you grow older and you realize, well, you know, he had enough to deal with. When you're dealing with a serious mental illness, it's really hard to see outside of yourself. And uh, it's hard to support anybody else emotionally when you cannot support yourself. Right. When you were going through school, uh, you know, they and you've probably heard this before, they have this sort of saying, right? A lot of people get into the mental health field to um, fix themselves, fix their family, or just understand better, right? Um, I can imagine when you were going through school, your perspective must have kind of started to shift and and start to explore these different things with your dad. Right. And beyond that, there was extreme fear that I would turn out like him. So obviously as a teenager, you don't know any better. And I was petrified, you know, because I was, I, I grew up used to seeing those behaviors. I'm thinking, well, is that my future? Yeah, and so I always tried, and if you look at kind of my my history, I always tried to do everything opposite to him. <laughs> uh, he was a chain he is a chain smoker. I never touched a cigarette in my life. He's a gambler. I never gambled in my life. <laughs> so in many ways, I tried to do the opposite of uh, a lot of things I was I was witnessing in the hopes that I would not turn out that way. So throughout your life, not just in school, but throughout your life, you were sort of inoculating yourself, trying to find a way to... Hoping to to be able to do so. Yes, absolutely. This is not something we choose. And I think this is for people who are not educated on, on mental illness and what people suffer, you know, there's a lot of blame going around and uh, people get blamed for having illnesses sometimes. And the more you study, the more you recognize what these people go through, the more empathy you have and the less you can criticize anything they do because you understand to some degree how painful it must be to be them and to go through that. That kind of brings me to my next question of what do you do nowadays when to, to maintain your own mental and emotional wellness? Well, ever since I was a kid, ever since I remember, I've always had 
sports in my mind. I was either playing sports, watching sports, talking about sports, <laughs> and not only sports, but nature. I, uh, I love to hike, I love to bike, I love to do things outdoors. And that's what I've always done to keep my sanity. And if that were to be taken away from me, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> so we got a man of mystery, a sports fan, and outdoor enthusiast. I love it. Um, when do you feel truly alive? When are those moments where you're really connected? In nature. It's the only way I, I feel that freedom. I remember as a teenager, I did a couple of trips around Europe on a bike with a friend where we would just, you know, take a train and just start biking around uh, for days, weeks. Uh, I did that throughout Spain. I did that in Europe throughout different uh, countries. And we would pretty much live the homeless life. So you would be biking around and camping or just finding a spot to sleep. There's such freedom to that. Uh, it, it's hard to describe. And <laughs> when I when I talk to homeless people, I, I get it because they describe this freedom. And I'm almost jealous sometimes <laughs> because I, I've experienced it. And not knowing where you're going to sleep the next night and having to figure that out <laughs> and just not having any worry but to feed yourself and to find a place to sleep. There's a lot of freedom there and it's addictive. In that sense, I really can relate when <laughs> when I uh, interview or talk to homeless people about that experience and how they miss it when they get housed and how it's hard to replace. I totally get it. <laughs> right there like you said freedom I think that was a really good word to use for that and then that paradox right of an absolutely difficult challenging lifestyle but then that sense of claustrophobia when you get that freedom mm -hmm. taken yeah. away what was one of the places that you visited that had the most impact on you I've been to many places I've been really fortunate we were a middle class family in Spain in the 70s 80s so there there was not a lot of, we didn't have a lot of family trips anywhere, vacations or anything like that. But the minute I was able to buy a bike at 14, I took off. I, <laughs> I was biking everywhere. I was going places. I was making my own vacations. <laughs> I would you know, collect money by doing some errands uh, with family and just with a few hundred bucks, I would just you know, take off for a few weeks with a friend or a couple of friends and just do things that way. And then as I became older, I moved to the States when I was 17. The reason why I moved to the States was I was a really bad student. <laughs> Growing up, I had no interest in, in studying. I, I just didn't like, I went to school, obviously, but I, I couldn't pay attention. I couldn't focus. Focus was a real problem for me. And when you're not interested in the subject, focus is even harder. So I, I wasn't doing great in school, but I was a very good athlete. So I decided I would come to the States and get a scholarship uh, to put myself through school that way because my family didn't really have money to, to support me through school. And I knew if I stayed in Spain, I would not get an education. So that was my thinking behind moving to the States when I was 17. And at the time, my father was living in New Jersey. And uh, it was also an opportunity for me to connect with him. 
uh, which <laughs> was a quite interesting ex experience. I I moved to New Jersey, and I went to high school for a year while I was trying to learn English. And then I did get that scholarship to attend college. But throughout that year, my father had another of his episodes, and I had to manage that almost by myself uh, while going through college, while being a student athlete, while <laughs> having all of these responsibilities and really very limited financial resources. And that's when I first dealt with the mental health system here in the States. So you have this manic person next to you who you're trying to hospitalize. The hospitals would not admit him till he was a danger to himself or others. And I'm thinking, well, you want to wait till he kills someone or someone kills him? <laughs> because that is kind of what they were telling me. Uh, I remember he, he the first few days uh, when he goes into mania, he gets very creative. You talk to him. I mean, it's when he's on medication, it feels like he's restrained. Uh, sometimes when he goes into this episode, he stops the medications. And he is brilliant for a few days. You talk to him and it's just, uh, he's very intelligent. But then as the days progress and he keeps not sleeping, things just get completely out of control. So I remember we lived in a, an apartment, two be one bedroom apartment. So we were sleeping in the same room and he was not sleeping. So I had to stay up with him because he was smoking and throwing cigarette butts uh, over the wooden floors, doing things like that. So <laughs> for a whole week, I was trying to keep him constrained. Uh, and then I would, um, we, I tried taking him and my godfather was there to help him, uh, to help me. Uh, we took him to a psychiatrist to see if he could help. So we walk into the appointment and uh, he walks in smoking a cigar. He looks at him, first thing he does, he just throws the cigar at him. <laughs> and within minutes, he storms out of the room. We never went back, he couldn't help at all. So we took him to the hospital a few times. We even tried to put him in a plane to go back to Spain so he could be treated in Spain. So we drive to JFK, we drop him off. Two hours later, I get home, the phone rings. I pick it up and it's my father laughing. <laughs> Almost this evil laugh. Uh, he's saying, no, I, I got off the plane or they kicked me out of the plane and uh, someone had fought it or something in the plane. So the smell was really bad. So he cr I don't know what he did in the, that plane, but we got him into the plane and they were on the uh, ramp to take off. And somehow he managed to get kicked out of the plane fortunately not arrested but we had to go back and get him <laughs> and then eventually it took a couple more days but we finally got him hospitalized and restrained and that was the last time that episode resulted in him going back to Spain again uh, once he recovered uh, so after that it was kind of a relief I was in college I was living there taking care of myself. Basically, I would work on this in the summer and that would cover all my expenses for the year. And I would even fly back once a year uh, home. So, you know, I, I lived in a limited budget, but I had more than I needed. So I was really happy actually in college. <laughs>
So things kind of came full circle for you, it sounds like. You know, you had these experiences with your dad when you were young, and then you had this period of freedom as a teenager, and then you became a caregiver for a period of time. Yeah. And the caregiving part, it always felt like, as far as I can remember, we were caring for him. And <laughs> when you're a child, you kind of resent that because that's not your role. <laughs> you're not supposed to be caring for a parent. You're not supposed to, you know, be, it's supposed to be the other way around. And there's that frustration too of, I, I don't know how to do this role, right? I'm not prepared to take on this role. And that is something that never changes. To this day, I, we, my sister and I, both educated and with degrees in the field, <laughs> <laughs> struggle to manage him because he still cannot budget. He still, you know, and uh, you have to know where to draw the line between enabling and supporting. <laughs> and that's a really hard line to, to walk. And w I give him money and within a day or two, he has no money. So he has a fairly decent pension, but he gets it the first of the month and by the 8th, he has no money the rest of the month. And he won't let us manage his finances. Legally, it's very difficult in Spain to remove that ability from him. There are more protections for people. And because he's mentally ill and not physically or medically or mentally incapacitated in other ways, a judge won't give us control of his finances to help him. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard with the it's the invisible illnesses, right? Um, for people to really understand the impact, unless you've lived through it like you have. Yeah, and the we 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 tried. I mean, we looked at all the options legally, and he presents so well. I mean, it. If you talk to him, you wouldn't know he has a mental illness. It's severe mental illness, <laughs> but unless he is in one of those episodes, you it's hard for people to know but we manage the best we can and I, I think living in a society where there's more support is helpful for him that's why he's he ended up in spain because it's really hard to survive in this country when you have a mental illness it sounds like that relationship is kind of connected to what you're doing now too with cpr looking at those treatment outcomes like really what helps what works in this in this sea of all this information trying to pick out the things that are really effective yeah absolutely and uh, we know m obviously medications help for people with serious mental illnesses there's no he could not be stable without medications even though obviously there's a trade-off in in some levels of functionality and their side effects and they have to deal with that, which is difficult, but without him, I don't know where he would be. He wouldn't be obviously able to be independent, which he is right now. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And it was very inspiring and it was just a, a completely different look, a different perspective on mental illness, being a family member and the journey that you've been through with your father. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Oh, you're very welcome. I was glad to do it. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. 
CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara LaMontagne, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support. <laughs>